Welcome back to the mystery of the missing attention span. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Brain Detective Podcast. This is Dr. Jennifer Morrison. This is an extension of a prior discussion that we started. So hopefully you guys are jumping in as a part two, but if you're not, the episode right before this one may be really helpful to listen to first because the broad topics we are looking at include ADHD, but there's a lot to discuss. So we're breaking into two big chunks. The same wonderful team of ladies is here today, myself, Dr. Jennifer Morrison, Catherine Harris, one of our wonderful assessment specialists. Hello, glad to be back. Dr. Mari Rodriguez-Rivera. Happy to be here. And Dr. Katie Caldwell. Hi, everybody. So we're going to jump back in right where we were before. And I think Mari's going to start us off with this one. All right. So Mari, let's start with the hyperactive impulsive piece of ADHD. There's a number of characteristics. Start us off with what to look for. Thank you, Jennifer. I think we're going to be talking about pulling to this thought category that I like to talk to the parents about is your brain stop and go signs. It's all those times when your brain fails to tell you to stop when you should stop. So one of the first things that you can notice is a kid being very fidgety, right? So their bodies in constant movement, they may be tapping their fingers, moving around, you know, we all do this. There's times when this can interrupt other people. So our brain tells us stop, not the time to do it, right? So when you're at the dinner table, you know, it's okay to be a little bit restless. But then if you're over the table, on uh, standing up, you know, <laughs> spilling your juice, that's a little bit too much, right? So that's the difference between normal movement and fidgetiness that you see with ADHD. That's true, Maddie. I think about this as being a high movement kind of threshold. Kids that sit and squirm in seated activities like eating dinner at the dinner table, but also have difficulty in play, like that may just move too much, period. They're flopping around on the couch when they're watching a show, they're shaking their leg, they're doing all kinds of crazy things that make it difficult for their body to stay still and calm and to be able to be in an environment kind of calmly and comfortably. So Katie, talk with me about what the second criterion might look like. So the second criterion is leaving your seat in a situation where remaining seated is expected. And so this often comes up in the school setting, as Monty mentioned, also can be when eating dinner at home. But this is kids who feel that need to get up and walk around or move around when they may be expected to be seated during instruction or maybe during circle time if they're in preschool. Maybe they're turning around on their mat or getting up and doing jumping jacks in the back. Okay. So for these kids that struggle with fidgeting and leaving their seat, we see a lot of off-task behavior. Like this isn't the task that you're supposed to be doing. But there's also kind of a subjective feeling of restlessness that these kids will experience. And what we see as the physical hyperactive and impulsive behaviors that we think of as being ADHD is much more likely to occur visibly in younger kids. As they get older, that physical hyperactive and impulsive tendency tends to mellow out, if you will, but it stays in the form of a cognitive restlessness. So kids that have a hard time with tasks that take too long, they're much more likely to complain that things are boring. They are much more likely to tell you that they feel the need to move on to something else or that this is taking too long and they're ready to go. 
So their brain is unable to do those things comfortably. They often have a hard time settling to sleep because there's a lot going on. And that, that hamster wheel of thinking is spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, and it's, it can't calm and soothe. So Catherine, talk with me about what next element we may be looking for. Um, a lot of times we'll see difficulty with, you know, quiet leisure activities. Um, so kids with ADHD are more likely to um, be loud and proud in their play. <laughs> have difficulty with um, more calm activities. Um, you know, we're looking at volume of voice. We're looking at um, kind of roughness in play. A lot of times kids tend to be a little bit maybe too rough. You know, like a slightly younger child might be so those kinds of things. Personal space. Personal lot. Or yes. lack thereof. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. So that kind of awareness. So th- those are what we would look for. Yeah. So they're often like on the go. So parents feel like the kid has so much energy that it sometimes can be exhausting for the person that is next to them. It's like they're being driven by a motor. So um it can be challenging when you're in the car, right? Because then it's like walking and you're driving and the kid is constantly moving or asking you, you know, are we getting there? You know, um, it's that, you know, generally our brain generates movement to keep us alert, right? If you're in a boring activity, you're going to move a little bit, shift. That's your brain telling you move around. I need to be a little bit more alert. But then with the kids with ADHD, you know, there's the go, 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 go part, but not the stop part. Right. And I think a common misconception that occurs sometimes with, with this movement is that if a child is moving, then they're not paying attention. And while that might be the case some of the time, sometimes the movement helps the child focus better. So the child may not be looking at you, they might not be near you, but they may be attending to what you're saying and taking in the information. It's just more so that their brain needs to move while they listen. Mm -hmm. So the problem with some of these things is that it can interfere with the ability to pay attention because your brain can only focus on so much at one time. So things like talking excessively, you can't talk and actively listen to somebody else very well. Your brain doesn't have the multitasking ability to manage those two streams of information successfully at a real high degree. So one of the criterion that we would be looking at is that child who does have a lot to say. And we never want to turn that off. I mean, truly, personally, that's it's one of my favorite assessment experiences is to work with a child who has a lot to offer. They've got insights and observations and things that they are sharing about their world and their experience are some of the most cherished pieces of information that I get in, in working with a child. But sometimes that excessive talking means interrupting or having difficulty um, with waiting their turn, which falls into some of these other categories. I'm looping them together because I think they all feel similar. They all go together. They do. So that kid who has difficulty with impulse control and stopping and, and waiting their turn, that can be the reason why they're talking over the top. But Catherine, is it something that you could see behaviorally as well? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, so what this often looks like in, in a classroom is um, the kid who you know, calls out an answer without raising his hand, uh, interrupts the other child who's trying to answer because they just don't have that inhibition piece. There's a lot of good in there because they're excited to share. 
um, that, you know, they know something and they want to share that it's about, you know, learning to, to know when it's the good idea to speak up. Right. Because then otherwise it's really like intruding, you know, on other people's space and, you know, time. So the kid might even be trying to be helpful, right? Like somebody spilled something and then they get out of the seat to get a, you know, a, I don't know, paper towel. And the teacher's like, you know, Johnny, why are you standing up? You know, because, you know, he forgot to tell the teacher, oh, he spilled something. I'm going to help him out. So it's that sometimes it's not coming up, right? It's just the go, go, go. And then it ends up being, uh, it affects friendship sometimes too, because then you're in the playground and then you cut somebody in line just because you're so enthusiastic about it. So you're in, you know, intruding in somebody's face, you know, and they're like, well, but I was just playing, you know, well, but I was just going to help. Right. Well, but I was just going to do this thing. And they are, <laughs> but it's just like, you know, Catherine was saying, it's the timing of it, you know? Absolutely. It's all about timing. And often to me, the things that I think of um, for the, these kids that struggle with hyperactive and impulsive behaviors is that they are capable of stopping. They are capable of going, but they are frequently going when it's time to stop and stopping when it's time to go. They have trouble getting started. They have trouble keeping going. They have difficulty using those breaks when it's time to stop. So it feels a little bit like uh, just early time behavior. It's the right behavior at the wrong time. It may be helpful behavior that's actually intrusive. It may be sharing something about your day with their parent, but they're on the phone this time. And so it may not be the right junction to be able to do that. Anybody else have anything to add? Go ahead, Katie. Another thing that comes to mind. So a lot of the things that we've been talking about with ADHD in this episode have related to regulation. So talking excessively, blurting out, difficulty waiting, um, their turn. That's all a difficulty with, with regulation or you know, behavioral control. Oftentimes, something that goes along with this, but is not necessarily written in the criteria, is emotional regulation. And so often we'll hear parents say, you know, it, the, the, my child is either zero or they're 10, or things are either really happy and exciting or they're really, really frustrating and upset. And so this emotional regulation piece is often a symptom that. Is, is not written in there, but often comes up in conversation. That's a, a great addition to this conversation because it's not a diagnostic criterion, but I think it's a sidebar piece that we will see often for kids that struggle with impulse control because they have high highs and they have low lows. And it's the same extremes with their um, behavioral responsiveness. They can full stop. They may not be able to get started easily again, or they can full go, but they might not be able to get stopped when it's time to slow down or to um, adjust their behavior. This truly is a set of criterion that are related to modulation, regulation, and the ability to switch evenly between stopping and going and to judge the appropriate timing for these behaviors. And at certain age ranges, it's appropriate for some of these things to show up. And so in the next episode, we're going to be talking about how we take these diagnostic criterion, the super fancy psychologist version of what behaviors we're looking for, and translate that into an evaluation that gives us information about whether a child actually meets criterion for ADHD, because it's more than just seeing these criterion. We have to do a couple of extra steps too. So just to foreshadow what we're going to be talking about next, we're going to be taking these diagnostic criterion and turning them into a discussion about what a good thorough evaluation that can rule things in and out looks like when ADHD is at the top of the consideration list. 
Welcome to this week's Quick and Easy Behavior Tips. This is Dr. Morrison. What we're going to talk about today is a technique called the broken record technique. I did not come up with this on my own. It is a pretty tried and true parent strategy that comes into play in situations when you need something simple to happen relatively immediately. For those of you that have kids that are more likely to say no than yes or build in conversation about why your request is getting in the way of their agenda or is stupid or shouldn't have to happen right now or can wait till later, sometimes the back and forth conflict part is actually keeping the task from getting done on purpose. Kids build in opportunities to derail what you've asked them to do because it allows them to continue to do what they want to do for a little bit longer. So we don't want to get into a power struggle with kids. Nobody wins in a power struggle. Parents lose because they're frustrated. Then they raise their voice and remind, remind, remind until things get done. This causes you to nag your kids, which causes them to ignore you even further because every time you talk, you're saying something negative or irritating. So in this case, we want the task to get done quickly. This doesn't work for every single task, but for simple things that kids should be able to execute independently, a simple broken record can be quite helpful. So the way the broken record techniques going to work is that we're going to use opportunities to build in a repeated request that doesn't stop until the child actually starts doing what they are supposed to be doing. So we're going to give an example for uh, a little girl named Annie. Let's say I'm Annie's mom and I want her to clean up the space that she has in her bedroom where there's some extra dishes. So I might say, Annie, take the dishes from your room and put them in the dishwasher, please. And then stop and make eye contact with Annie and wait three to five seconds. And if Annie starts to talk about something different or she doesn't notice me, then I'm going to insert a second attempt at this. Annie, dishes to the dishwasher, please. Annie, dishes to the dishwasher, please. I'm not going to change this phrase. I'm going to keep making requests until it happens. And after each one, I'm going to pause, stay calm, three to five seconds, wait. And what I'm looking for is the opportunity to see the child start moving in that direction. It doesn't have to be done. Like you don't have to follow them around and harp on them. Essentially what you're wanting to do is just get them started because most kids, once they start doing what you've asked them to do, will follow through most of the time. So once Annie says, okay, fine, and she's exasperated because I've said 60 times that I need her to do this or maybe even just twice, then she starts heading to her room. Thanks, Annie. And you wait. And when she comes back with the dishes, headed toward the kitchen, great job. I really appreciate your help. So something strategic to tell her, I appreciate you, is good. In this case, make sure that as a broken record does not get emotional, you don't either. Nice and calm. You're looking for specific target behaviors. When you see Annie stop what she's doing and move toward her bedroom, great. You're telling her you like that she's gotten started. When she passes back by with all intents and purposes, looking as if she might finish this task, then you also tell her thank you for your your time and effort because that's what you would want to, right? As an adult, you want your kids to look at you and say, thanks, mom. I appreciate your time and effort. So you want to model that for your own children when you ask them to do things, even if they're things that should be expected or things that you wished Annie had done before you had to ask her to clean clean up the dishes. In this case, though, the broken record technique is a really powerful way to reduce conflict and increase compliance for kids that are more likely to stall out this process with arguments or back and forth commentary. Hope this helps. I'll talk with you soon.
back to the Kids Brain Detectives podcast. This is Dr. Jennifer Morrison and Dr. Marigalisa Rodriguez and Dr. Katie Caldwell and Catherine Harris. We've got the whole team together. And today what we're going to do is piggyback off of the first few episodes in this season talking about ADHD, because today we're going to talk about assessment, which is our specialty. But we're not going to talk about checklists for behavior. We've talked about the inattentive features of ADHD and the hyperactive and impulsive features. Today, we're going to talk about how we as a team, how we kids brain, think about building an assessment that helps us determine whether ADHD is present. But more often than not, what that means is making sure it's not something else or several other somethings else. So let's start with an overview of kind of what age range we're thinking about when we're considering ADHD diagnosis. I think it's really important when you're considering an ADHD diagnosis that you're, what we're really referring to is school age children. So this is typically ages five and older. So there are certain cases where I may diagnose a four-year-old with ADHD, but there are some factors there that need to be present. One is that the child has had access to an environment outside of home. So they've they've been in a preschool setting or maybe it's a child who's had various interventions and those interventions have not fully been successful and these symptoms of ADHD are significant enough to where the diagnosis at age four makes sense. With that being said, though, typically ages five and older, when the child has had the exposure to the school setting. So with any new environment, there is a adjustment phase. And so when children are entering school and they've never been in school before, it takes time to understand the the, the rules and, and what is required of them. So the ability to stay in a chair or listen to the teacher or wait or take turns when, when speaking, those kinds of things. And so it's important for children to have that exposure and that adjustment period to really tease apart is this just, is just, just a lack of exposure and that they're getting used to the demand of a different environment? Or is this really something we need to take a closer look at? I will say another factor is, is that if you're, if you're talking about ADHD in an older child, it is important to keep in mind that the symptoms need to show up before age seven to some degree. So part of this is both the minimum age range where you start to think that the hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive features might be developmentally inappropriate. But also, they are in a second, at least one other setting that you could gain information from. And in your assessment, pull information from a parent and somebody else, usually a teacher, to be able to see whether that child's behavior is significantly different from what would be expected given their age. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So there's some additional pieces I'm trying to gather to you. And my conceptualization of ADHD diagnosis is that it is very important as a primary goal to make sure we cannot explain these behaviors in some other way, that there might not be some medical, developmental, or other neurocognitive reason why the outside appearance of attention and behavioral control struggles may be there. So for me, the first step to this process is a good, thorough developmental history from parents. At KidsBrain, we're going to meet with parents extensively and gather information in their parent observations to see what kinds of pieces might be important. And so the ones that I think of right at the top of the list 
have to do with sleep, food, and family history. So let's start with sleep. For kids that have difficulties with sleep regulation and they don't sleep through the night when they're little and they have a hard time sleeping and can potentially be presenting with sleep deprivation, this is a major factor that may even get me to stop an assessment process and see if we can fix this problem first because a tired brain looks virtually identical to an ADHD brain. And if we can just fix the sleep problems, we may be in a territory where we don't have to consider clinical diagnosis because there's truly kind of a medical reason why those behaviors are there. I also asked about food. And I'm not a real big proponent of like special diets and things like that that don't have a huge evidence base for um, treatment of specific symptoms. But I do want to make sure that a child's brain is nourished. So having a relatively well-rounded diet that involves some protein sources, whether they be plant-based or meat-based protein sources, a good selection of healthy carbohydrates, fruits, and vegetables, and that they're eating at regular intervals is helpful. For kids that have significantly restricted diets and are not getting the nourishment that their brain needs to build itself. I might also stop down an assessment and say, let's see if we can do some nutritional work here because this child may function better if their body is feeding their brain effectively. And then the final piece that I, from a developmental history standpoint, I'm looking for is indicators within the family tree that ADHD might be something that runs in the family. It's not impossible for a child to come to an assessment and be the first one ever that comes out of that process with an ADHD diagnosis, but it's really common in conversation with parents to hear about an uncle, a brother, a cousin, a grandfather who maybe didn't have a diagnosis but struggled with similar symptoms. So oftentimes I'm going to ask, does this child remind you of somebody that's in your family? Like, do they have characteristics that kind of like your dad or kind of like your husband or kind of like your, you know, your cousin? These are the sorts of things that family history wise can serve as precursors for diagnosis, at least consideration of diagnosis, because ADHD is genetic and runs in families a good portion of the time. So let's take a look at some other actual diagnoses that would potentially be impacting for consideration if we want to really make a clear differential assessment for ADHD. What might that look like? Um, so because ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder, um, there are other systems that, that um, develop during early childhood you have to consider um, including language and motor skills and intellectual abilities that progress as a child gets older. Um, and so whenever you are considering, you know, if it's one of these or if it's many of them, because they're oftenly comorbid, um, it's important to include those pieces in your assessment so that you can um, plan your interventions appropriately. So, um, you know, the ones that come to mind as really common would be like a language disorder because that's that's pretty common in general. Kids who have difficulties with you know developing a receptive or expressive language. Um, so maybe not articulation. Yeah, articulation is I would say is less of an issue as far as making the differential diagnosis because so for example, a kid who has difficulty understanding what you're saying to him um, may not follow directions very well, right? Um, and so you might think it's an attention issue when really their, their comprehension is not there. 
And so you can see how those things might be easily confused and you'd want to take that into consideration. Um, and you also want to look at motor development, sensory development. A lot of times hyperactive behaviors can be sensory seeking. Um, and so you want to make sure you're considering all of those things and, and not you know, misidentifying it. So maybe you have a child who doesn't have great motor control through their core. They fall under their chair. Maybe they're not being hyperactive impulsive. Maybe they just have poor bodily control in general. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what we're trying to do then, it sounds like, is to take these criteria that we would look at on an ADHD checklist, if you will, of symptoms and say, am I certain that these symptoms are definitely related to ADHD or can I explain them some other way? Right. Right. What, what other impacts do you think of body that we might want to consider? Um, so. Any of us could look as if we had ADHD, if we were sad or stressed, or if we're lonely, or if we're not doing well physically. So earlier you talked about the importance of sleep and nutrition. One of the reasons that we get so many referrals to our pediatricians in schools is because of the comprehensive evaluation that we do. So the other component is looking at that kid's mood. How do they feel about themselves? How do they feel about their relationship with others? Because um, the, if you're sad or stressed or if you're lonely, your brain looks, your brain functions in the same way with somebody at ADHD, right? So part of the assessment is to tease that out, understanding is this because of a, you know, a mood issue or is this really like an impairment in attention? Okay. What other factors can you think of, Katie, that we're wanting to rule out? There's a number of environmental factors that are, are very important to ask parents about as part of the assessment process. So things like, have, has there been a recent or a major change within the family? So this can be something like the birth of a new sibling, maybe a, an ill parent or grandparent. All, any kind of change, whether it be major or minor, there's an adjustment period for children. And so if a child is still within that period of adjusting to a change, sometimes symptoms, their symptoms will mimic symptoms that you would see with ADHD. So that's an important distinction. Also just asking questions about structure or lack thereof in certain environments. So sometimes a child will do great in school one year. Maybe they have a teacher who provides a certain level of structure or just relates to them in some way. And then maybe the next year, maybe it's not necessarily a poor teacher, but just a teacher who structures things differently or who gives instructions differently. And so it's not necessarily the origin of their difficulties is not necessarily related to ADHD or something else, but maybe it's just that they don't haven't had the time or the opportunity to learn the skills, or maybe that there's tweaks in the environment that needs that need to be made. And the same thing is true for home. So sometimes Parenting is a complicated, humbling, trial and error process. And as a parent myself, I have to say I make mistakes all of the time. And so, but it's important to ask parents about their parenting styles, how they structure their home, their expectations of their kids, because sometimes the difficulties that a child exhibits can be the result of maybe we need to make some tweaks in the environment to help that child be more successful based on the environment and also the child's temperament and personality. And so just putting a, putting a deep dive into all of the environmental factors at play is very important as part of the diagnostic process. 
So we're hearing a lot of different elements that we're considering. And, and there's a lot of ways to complete an ADHD evaluation. We, as assessment professionals, focus on things slightly differently than other disciplines might. So how a pediatrician or a neurologist or a psychologist that doesn't have as much in-depth in uh, neurocognitive processes outside of observable behaviors might handle these things differently. And it might involve simply gathering information from parents and teachers as far as, am I seeing this thing? What we are doing as a part of this process is to say, are you seeing this thing? How frequent and intense are these behaviors? Are there other things that might account for these behaviors? And maybe most importantly, are these behaviors significantly unexpected given this child's age? And there are times that we are all going to be inattentive or hyperactive and impulsive. The question is, is this child more inattentive or more hyperactive and impulsive than would be expected in this developmental age range? And if we can then if we meet that threshold and we say, yes, these behaviors are here. They are markedly more um, impacting and pronounced than we would expect. Then the second step in that process is to say, it's definitely not these other things. Because if it is other things, then the intervention plan for that's going to be quite different. So, Mani, talk with me a little bit about if you're considering all of these alternate diagnoses, a situation when you might say, I see these behaviors, but it's not ADHD. Can you give me kind of a brief real world example of when the behavioral checklist might suggest ADHD, but your diagnosis does not end up being ADHD? Um, two things come to mind. The first one is the expectations that we adult as adults have, right? So there are times when um, as parents or teachers may be uh, frustrated with a child's behavior, but the reason that frustration comes along is because they're expecting the child to do much, so much more than what they're supposed to be doing for, you know, for their age. So you know? maybe what's expected for that age is significantly different from the environmental expectation. Correct. Right. So I think that, you know, the assessment is also like a learning and therapeutic process in which we're going to have those conversations about you know, yes, this is what an eight-year-old does, you know, now he may be in this, you know, do what Katie was saying, he may be in this, uh, working with this teacher, that then it's highlighting some of his weaknesses, but it may not be like ADHD, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, you were asking specifically, okay, about what if he does look like ADHD, you know, um, and what's an example of like, how it could manifest as something, you know, as something else. Um, so, for example, if you're talking about somebody who is, um, you know, sad, you know, like I was saying before, sad, stressed, or lonely, you may have some adaptability, but it's not that, oh, my brain is interested in other things, and I am, like, thinking about my basketball game, and interrupting the conversation about basketball game, is my mind is very busy ruminating, thinking about, that thing that Johnny did to me. And then I'm very sad about that. So I'm not attending to you, but because of how much space this difficult situation takes up in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. So that the person is seeing this kid is not listening to my instructions, right? But then the the difficulty with attention comes from two different places. Sure. 
kind of along those lines, what this also reminds me of is, is kind of looking at where it happens in the brain. And so when we talk about things like anxiety, the main brain area that's activated in that is called the amygdala, so your fight or flight. So a child might have difficulty getting through a task because their alarm system in their brain is going off because they feel overwhelmed with the task or they don't feel like they can do it or their anxiety or whatever reason is just so high that it makes the task nearly impossible versus with ADHD, it, it's oftentimes more frontal lobe of maybe that the filter isn't there and they're excited or they're, they're paying attention to a lot of other things in the environment or breaking down the, the steps needed to do the task, uh, especially if it's something that they don't find interesting, it's just challenging. That's an excellent point. And it makes me think about one additional rule out we didn't include, which was a trauma history. So for kids that have a history of individual traumas, whether they're small traumas or large traumas, oftentimes the um, the regulation issues that you see with ADHD look very similar mm-hmm. in those situations. So this really is just capture the deep dive assessment that we try to complete at KidsRing so that when it comes to intervention planning time, which is maybe to me anyway, and you guys might have a different opinion, but I believe the whole reason parents come to us is to figure out what to do next and to have an action plan that's targeted and tailored and specific to their child so that they don't feel like they're just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what, what sticks. Yeah. So Catherine, I wanted, I was thinking about your language example before about language being a problem. If you, if you took this, this hypothetical child that is having some language issues, but parents come in and say, I think it's ADHD. And you just go down the checklist of criteria that we've talked about over the course of the last few episodes. And you say, it looks like ADHD. And then you go to treat it like ADHD, but it's a language problem. What would that look like? So um, probably that child would end up in speech therapy and all of the, um, you know, if, if it's ADHD, it's, there's going to be no improvement. If it was a language disorder, there will be improvement. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, the assessment process is much more than just a checklist. For that reason, I think it's, um, you can take a lot of kids and ask the parents sweet questions and, and it could say, yes, we need she, but there's a million other things going on. So, um, yeah, that's the importance of a really thorough differential um, because you want to make sure that you're getting at underlying problem. And sometimes there's more than one and there's a lot of comorbidities. And so it's not like we're, we're saying that it has to be just one thing, um, but you just want to be sure that you're going for the right thing. That's an excellent point. That there is a lot of overlap in some of these areas and it is quite common to have kids who meet criterion for ADHD or have an additional mood symptom piece that's there. Maybe it's ADHD and anxiety or ADHD and depression or sensory struggles and ADHD or even language difficulties and ADHD. Part of the process of being able to figure this out is to work with an assessment professional that does diagnose and work with kids of in all of these domains so that when you have one child sitting in front of that assessment specialist, that they are bringing all of that experience to the table to say, this child best meets these criterion. And it appears that these behaviors are rooted in this thing that now we can support and address and provide intervention for to create the most optimal opportunity for this child to thrive, which is what I think parents really want. And that's a great point, Jennifer. I think that's one of the most 
challenging and exciting things about our jobs as a specialist or psychologist is that unfortunately and unfortunately, there is not an MRI or a blood test for ADHD or anxiety. So it's not that we can give one assessment or one checklist and be able to say, ah, oh, that's what it is now. No, it's a much more comprehensive, multifaceted process that Honestly, I think provides much more insight and intervention, tailored intervention planning than just doing a confirmatory yes or no. But it is a complicated process that requires a lot of experience of somebody who has a lot of experience working with these types of things. Right. Just different types of kids. I mean, he has had experience in different settings to be able to see that experiential piece and bring it to the table. Okay. Can any of you ladies think of any additional pieces you need to tackle for this one? The only additional thing that this just kind of relates to the language thing, but I think it's worth bringing up because it often does happen in young children, is back to the whole medical history part, is that if a child has had frequent uh, ear infections or hearing loss for whatever reason, that's an unfair, a very simple but important question to ask because you want to make sure before you do the assessment that the child can actually hear you. Sure. Absolutely. So hearing, vision, and then ruling out, if we were talking about sleep at the very beginning, ruling out makes them sleep apnea or other medical factors that we may be able to address directly and alleviate symptoms, either all together or to the point that it's no longer something we are considering as being potentially like diagnosable. We've reduced that symptom load to the point where a child is functioning and they're doing well and parents are seeing improvement and they're able to get through their day at a higher level of capability than they were showing before. A lot of you might be wondering, well, you talk about how this assessment process is so complex. What is it? That's a topic for another episode because it is important for us to explain what, what an assessment looks like. Okay, so then while you wait on this cliff that we've left you on, we're going to do a quick segment that talks about what specific testing elements we're including in a good differential evaluation so that for those of you that maybe aren't close to Kids Brain and aren't going to bring your kids to us for assessment, that you can ask some questions of your local assessment specialists and really vet the process that they are using for assessment so that you are getting something as um, thorough and comprehensive as we have described. Because really, as a team, we think that this is the best way to figure out is it ADHD? If it's not, what else is it? So that we're moving beyond a simple yes or no question. And then we're able to provide some tailored intervention strategies that have the opportunity to help this child move forward in a much more successful way. So stay tuned for a segment on what those actual elements might look like. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk with you soon.